Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. It's almost universally accepted as a notion that the world is full of good and bad people. There are the good guys, there are the bad guys, there are those that we like and those we don't like, those that we approve and those that we don't approve of, those who are accepted and those who are avoided. And everyone sort of has their personal standard by which they set their criteria and make their judgments and determine their groups. Many times it depends on the context in which you grew up, cultural factors, Uh, National factors, relational factors, political factors, all of those things go into our formulas depending on your home and your lifestyle and your nation and your religion. You make your determination about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And of course, more times than not, most people end up classifying themselves, of course, in the good guys. Albeit they may not be perfect, but they, they're doing their best, they know their mistakes, but when weighed in the balances, their general assumption is that they're basically good, they're on the right side of things, they're not perfect, but they're better than most. Now if there's ever a group that believed that, it was the Jews. The nation of Israel had really been taught from their beginning and children brought up in Israel had been taught from their birth that among all the peoples of the earth, they were God's chosen people. And what that meant was that there was a a certain favor, at least an assumption of favor in their mind. There was a certain credit that they would receive because in light of everyone else, they were God's people. It was us versus them. Or as Paul uh, phrases it in Galatians 2.15, whenever he's in his dialogue with Peter, he says to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This was, this was their attitude. We're the Jews, we're the covenant people, we're the chosen people, we're the good guys, and everyone else out there, all the Gentiles, they are the sinners, As opposed to everyone else, they naturally believe that God favored them. They believe it because they thought that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible speaks about God choosing the nation of Israel for, for having a special place in His plan for mankind. And because of that, they received blessings. They received, as we noted last week, a number of blessings. They received covenants. They received uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the priesthood, they received the temple, and the, all these things that, that sort of represented God and represented the truth. They received, of course, most importantly, the word of God, as Paul says at the beginning of Romans chapter 3. But Israel's mistake was to think that simply because they had those blessings, it automatically meant that they were the good guys, that they somehow had an advantage. They assumed at least that the blessings meant that on the day of judgment, they would basically be counted among the righteous if they remained faithful to God. But as we've been seeing, Paul writes the first chapters of Romans, Romans 1 and 2 and even into chapter 3, 
to deliver a much, much different view of Israel. In fact, really a different view of all mankind. He's been writing to deliver the blistering news that every person, no matter where you're from, no matter how you're brought up, no matter what the context you know, no matter what you understand or don't understand about God, what you've been taught or haven't been taught, how much of the Bible you've been exposed to or haven't been exposed to, how faithful you are in worship or not. Every single person born into this world is looked at by God as bad, as evil. Paul states it in this conclusion in chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. This is his conclusion after two and a half chapters of driving home the point. Every person in every situation has no soundness, no goodness of their own. He talked about bad people, of course, who approve bad things. We know that they would be considered guilty by God, but he even talked about those who have moral standards, those who disapprove of bad things. Even in their disapproval, Paul demonstrated that they themselves sometimes do the very things that they disapprove of. That they themselves are also guilty of the very things they condemn. The, the religious person, the unreligious person, the unmoral person obviously is guilty, but even the religious and moral person ends up being guilty. And that is the message of Romans 1 and 2. So the conclusion, none is righteous, no, not one. And he goes on in the next couple of verses to say, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The tone of the verses is very clear. It is universal. No one, no one, all, together, no one, not even one. Paul couldn't make it more explicit whenever he's trying to summarize what Mankind or where mankind stands before God, no matter what you think of people, no matter how you judge them, no matter how you think of yourself, no matter what criteria you use, whatever conclusion you personally come to about people or about yourself, the truth of the matter is no one is good. This is the verdict of God. This is where everyone stands in their natural state. It's a shocking conclusion, really, in light of modern society, in the context of the modern self-esteem cult, the selfie culture of the day, the me-first culture of 21st century, where whether implicitly or explicitly, the world around you tells you the opposite message. The world around you wants you to believe that you are maybe under a layer of, of factors and influences of uh, negative influences from your environment, from your family, or even from genetics, whatever it might be, at the very core, deep down inside, you are good. The world around you wants to, you to believe that. They believe that about themselves. They want you to believe also that God loves you, that God loves 
everybody, or at least most everybody, they want you to think of yourself as good, as worthy, maybe as sincere, and they want you to think about yourself as valuable. In fact, many of you today might accept all that. You might have accepted that notion that you are valuable and that you're worthy and that you're good. But this morning, I want you to recognize that according to the Bible, you are anything but that. You're not born good. You're not good. You're not worthy. And you're not valuable before God. At least in and of yourself. In fact, the only way you could ever be considered good or worthy or righteous or valuable, the only way is if someone gave it to you. Because you could never, ever offer anything in and of yourself to achieve any of that. Now, if that's not offensive to you, it's offensive to most people. It's the offense of the cross. It'd be like going to someone in in our society and telling them, look, if you've had any success in life, if you've had any success in business, if you've had any success at all, if you've made your way any way in the world, if you have anything to speak of, it is simply because someone gave it to you. Here you are in your career and you've labored every day and you've done all these things and you've built up you know, uh, your, your resume or your assets or whatever it might be and someone comes along and says, well, if you have anything, it's because somebody gave it to you. And people would hear that and they would be offended that someone didn't recognize all of their effort and all of the investment and they, all the education that they went through and all the labor and all the early mornings and late nights and all that stuff, they would be offended that someone would come along and say to you that if you are anywhere in life, it's because someone handed it to you. Well, this is what Paul is saying. This is what the scripture says in a moral sense. That if you have anything before God, It has to be given to you. This, of course, is what happens in the cross of Jesus Christ. By his death, he offered up his righteousness in exchange for your filthy sin. He offered his worthy life in exchange for your worthless life. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him... To be sin who had no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's God. He he makes Christ who had no sin or knew no sin to be sin for us. So that we can become righteous. Those who place their faith in Christ receive then his worthiness, his goodness, his Righteousness as a free gift in exchange for the filthy rags of their unworthy life, their worthless life. Now, the reason that this is necessary, the reason that this is the only way that you could ever be considered worthy 
or good or valuable before God is spelled out for us in the clearest way in Romans 3 here. Paul says, as we began to read in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. The paths and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that they that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul's uh, really directing this at those who are under the law, and by extension, those who are not under the law. It's really an argument from the lesser to the greater, all those, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everyone, whether they have the law or don't have the law, whether they try to keep the law or whether they won't try to keep the law, everyone is under sin. They're under its curse. They're under its guilt. They're under its power. And Paul's aim in this passage, in a sort of summary fashion from everything he said in the opening two chapters of this book, is to declare and to demonstrate in a concentrated way, this truth, this truth that we sometimes call the depravity of man, the depravity of man, his moral and spiritual depravity, his moral and spiritual state. And when the Bible speaks about your moral and spiritual state, it speaks about you and it speaks about me as depraved, totally depraved. Not in the sense that we are as completely bad as we possibly could be. But in the sense that sin touches completely every part of your being. So that there is no remaining part that is untainted. There is no remaining part that is unaffected. There is no remaining part that could be in any way declared pure or good, or worthy. There's no part of you, mind, body, or spirit, that is of any value because of the effects of sin. The total depravity of sin taught through and through without, uh, throughout Scripture is really concentrated for us in these few verses. And Paul does it with a string of Old Testament quotations, piecing together various passages from Psalms and from prophets in the Old Testament that all speak about the guilt of people before God. Now, each of these passages, uh, each of the Psalms and each of the, 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 the prophets here were written really as a contrast with a sort of distinction between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. And the Jews would have read them like they read all of Scripture with their very typical us versus them mentality. They would have read this as a sort of a, the Jews maybe versus the sinners mentality, except for the fact that in all of these passages that Paul quotes from, 
he speaks about unrighteous people within Israel. In other words, this is not Jews versus Gentiles. This is not God's people versus those who are not God's people. This is Jews versus Jews. This is covenant people versus covenant people. This is chosen people versus chosen people. This is God's people versus God's people. And what he's saying here is that within the context of God's people, his covenant people, his chosen people, within the context of those people, there are those who will be judged and considered unrighteous, condemned, guilty. And all of it begs the question, then what is the advantage of being a Jew? Which is exactly what Paul says in verse 9. Are the Jews any better off then? And his answer is utterly clear. Not at all. Whether you are a religious person, a moral person, whether you are a part of Israel or not a part of Israel, whether you are within the, 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 the covenant people or not in the covenant people, all people are all alike under the same indictment. They are Unworthy. A Jewish person would have uh, been shocked to hear this. Because although they recognized they weren't perfect, Jews clearly wrote about and understood their imperfection. There was an assumption on their part. An assumption that even though they're imperfect, God would overlook their imperfections because they were one of the good people. They were one of the good guys. They were the covenant people. And what Paul's doing is he's undermining that. He's saying even among the covenant people, even among God's people, even among those that he's declared his favor on and shown his blessings to, God's going to find many of them unrighteous. And, of course, it begs another question. What makes the difference then? What makes someone righteous if all the ceremonies and all the covenants and all the sacrifices and all the stuff that they do doesn't make them righteous? What makes them righteous? And that will be Paul's eventual point, that whether you are within Israel or outside of Israel, whether you are religious or unreligious or whatever it might be, your justification before God will come only through faith. Your goodness, your worth, your standing will only come through faith. Now, before Paul gets there, he wants to drive home this point, though, about your guilt and your unworthiness. He wants you to to fully grasp the state that you stand in, in sinfulness before God. And to do that, he presents in these verses five Powerful testimonies of our sinful state. Five undeniable evidences, we might say, of our sinful state that he shows us in these verses. And the first one, this this sinfulness, our moral bankruptcy, is first of all evident in our darkened hearts. Because when Paul declares... In verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. He immediately expands on this with four statements, four 
quotations or allusions, a fusing together of a couple of psalms, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, which are actually very similar to one another and and seem to have identical quotations in them. But each of them are highlighting, uh, each of these quotations are highlighting a different aspect of what we might say is a depraved character or what the Bible often portrays as a darkened heart. And Paul begins by saying, there is no one who understands. When he says there's no one who's good, he explains that by saying no one understands. And really it's a rewording of Psalm 14, which says the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand. And it's sort of a rhetorical statement with the negative implication, there is no one. God looks down, he's searching, he's looking everywhere, and the implication is he can't find anyone who understands. Paul picks that up, paraphrases it, brings the theology to us in that succinct statement. No one understands. This is the spiritual condition of mankind in their natural state. Men and women are born into this world without spiritual understanding. They're spiritually blind. They're spiritually ignorant. Those are all terms that describe the same state. Spiritual ignorance. Now, it's not an ignorance for lack of knowledge. Paul's already made that clear. This isn't ignorance for lack of knowledge. This this ignorance arises from a willful rejection of truth. This is a refusal to accept truth. This is a purposeful ignoring of what you have heard or what you know about God. A refusal to factor into your worldview and into your way of reasoning the truth about God. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 4.17, when he talks about this spiritual ignorance, this lack of understanding, he says it is because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, it's not as if someone hasn't told you the truth. It's the fact that you haven't accepted it. It's the fact that you don't want it. Or as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, God has made himself clear to you in the things that are made. You look around, you see the the magnificence of creation and the beauty of the world around you and the mountains and the seas and all those things. And you are compelled by the evidence of those things, of God's attributes, of his glory and his power. And it demands of you that you humble yourself before God and be grateful. And yet the scripture says you're not. You reject all that, you resist all that, you ignore all of that. And so this is ignorance, but it's not an innocent ignorance. It is a deliberate refusal of truth. As a result of that, the scripture says your heart is darkened. Your mind is, your thinking processes are negatively affected darkened understanding, ignoring all the necessary data, hardness against sound truth. And all of this is the impact on your mind. Theologians call it the noetic effect of sin. It comes from the Greek word for nous, meaning that sin impacts not only your actions, but it impacts your, your mind. It impacts even your reasoning. 
Biblical truth, when it's held as suspect, leads people now to resolve their crises, to construct their worldviews on purely secular basis. Biblical truth, the scripture declares, is foolishness to so many people. It's looked at as naive. It's looked at as untested and unproven. And so the unbeliever ignores or rejects it. And in doing that, sometimes without even realizing it, they're left with only one other alternative. That if God is not going to be the authority who defines for you life and the universe, then you're going to be. It's the only other alternative. Now you become the one who judges what's right and what's wrong. Now you become the one, rather than submitting yourself to him, you are now the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. You are now the one who is the determiner of truth and falsehood. You're the one who has now been deified as the God of your own universe. This is the condition of the human heart. And to sum it all up, we would say the reasoning process is darkened because of this. It's not that you are surrounded by darkness. The darkness isn't on the outside. The darkness is on the inside. You are actually flooded with truth. You have truth all around you in creation. You have truth around you in family and friends who live the truth and believe the truth and experience the blessings of the truth, but you reject the truth. And so even your mind is profoundly impacted negatively. You reject the moral foundations that are written even on your own heart. You cut yourself off from God, and what happens is you become spiritually blind. You no longer have the basic fundamental uh, uh, or the basic foundation, we should say, for distinguishing good from evil, for distinguishing truth from falsehood, for distinguishing reality from unreality. The very definition of reality begins with God, and once you reject Him, you have no foundation. Paul expands on this darkened state of mind. Secondly, when he says in verse 11 that therefore no people seek God. And when they don't understand him, they reject him. They turn away from him. Their darkened heart, their inability to understand men and women then fail to seek after what is best. They pursue deceitful desires. They pursue falsehood. They pursue lies. They chase, chase after so many other idols in so many situations. They do not seek after God. Now, you might hear that and you might immediately question, but wait, there are a lot of people seeking after God. I mean, I look all around me and there is a growing population of Buddhism. There's a growing population of Islam. All around us, there are people who are seeking God, you might tell yourself. There's a general rise of spirituality in our own age where people are, are seeking after something. They're seeking after God. Even if it's not Christianity, there's... There's some hunger, there's some desire there. And you might conclude then that people really are seeking. You might conclude that they really are hungering for God. That the world is full of seekers. But to draw that conclusion would be a mistake. Because these people and all these religions 
religious movements around the world, they're not seeking after God. They're seeking a system. They're seeking a set of beliefs that will tell them and affirm to them what they basically already believe about themselves. They want a system that will affirm to them that they are the one, or excuse me, they are one of the good guys. One that will tell them that they are good people, that they are worthy, or they can make themselves worthy by their efforts. They want a system that will prove their worth and their righteousness. Someone has said there are only two kinds of religion in the world, the one of human achievement and the one of divine accomplishment. Well, what we witness all around us, all around the world, are not true seekers of God. They are seekers of human achievement. Whether it is the oneness of Islam that they're seeking or whether it is oneness with the Buddha, People are busy, busy, busy trying to achieve something that will make them worthy and something that will set them apart from all of the bad. Or on the other side, you have people who aren't religious at all. They're definitely not seeking God. They're living in a secular world with a secular worldview. They're not seeking a religion. They're just seeking their own pleasures. They're seeking their own flesh. They are equally blinded, equally darkened in their hearts, believing that the things that they seek are the ultimate reality and are the pathway to satisfaction. And they convince themselves that seeking God is futile. They convince themselves that it is a waste of time, that it is a lie. Many of them have been religious at some point in their life, They were religious maybe in their youth or they were brought up in a religious home and they have convinced themselves that whatever time they spent in religion was futile. It was wasted, that it never satisfied them. And so they don't seek God anymore. They seek a world. They seek uh, the pleasures of the world. They seek their own flesh. And in the darkness of their mind and their lack of understanding, they convince themselves that to seek God or to follow Christ is somehow to lose so much, to give up their freedoms, to give up their enjoyment, to give up their life. But they don't understand. They're blinded, they don't understand the truth because of the darkness of their heart, and so they believe all those lies. They don't realize what the Scripture says, that if you know the truth, the truth actually sets you free. They don't realize that they are slaves to their own passions, captives to their own desires, enslaved to things that do not satisfy, pursuing vain and empty pathways. Which thirdly kind of takes us to the third expansion that Paul gives here on this darkness when he says that their people are turning aside. They all have turned aside. They deviate They they go down some other pathway. The idea is very clear that there is one way. There is one pathway. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So God has made it clear. He's established where we should walk. And what man does is he branches out. He goes his own way. He deviates from what is the truth, what is the pathway of life. 
Isaiah 53, we have gone astray. Every man has turned to his own way. They turn away from the pathway of blessing. They turn away from the pathway of fullness. They turn away from the pathway of God to a pathway of emptiness and futility and hurtful schemes. Any of us at some point or another have either meditated on or memorized Psalm 1. This is the basic paradigm of all of Scripture. That blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf doesn't wither and all that he does prospers. But the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. So this is what people do. Rather than going down the pathway that leads to nourishment, that leads to fruitfulness, that leads to an unwithering life, rather than going down that pathway and being planted like a a tree by the waters, they go down the pathway of sinfulness and scoffing and scornfulness. They go down the pathway that leads them to nothing but chaff. They grasp on to whatever they thought that was going to be the answer for them and it just blows away like the husk of a, of a, of a grain of wheat. They commit themselves, consume themselves with pursuing all these selfish goals, with accumulating all these temporal possessions, with with pouring themselves into all of these disappointing sources of pleasure, constructing dreams and goals that just, that just leave them empty. And yet all the while, there's God's truth beckoning to you. The book of Proverbs pictures it like a, a woman in the streets calling out to the foolish and the naive person. And the the writer of Proverbs says that all her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are paths of peace. And so you hear the truth and you see the truth lived out in lives of people around you and yet you deviate, you turn away to the own, your own foolishness even though it hurts and even though you have been stung by it again, you go down the same insane pathway of lust and sin and you turn away from God and all the while Christ is standing there telling you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And yet man turns away. He turns away and fourthly, Paul says, they become worthless. Worthless. No value, no value to themselves, not much help to others, and no value to God. Nothing of value within them that makes them worth anything to God. As I said earlier, this this is not a message that the world has. For men and women, they want you to think that you're valuable at the core. The core of your identity, that you have this sort of, sort of essential, intrinsic value, even if, even if you've been corrupted by some negative influences. That's why I believe it is so hard for people in modern society 
to sacrifice much of anything for themselves. In fact, it's sad to see this now sort of sort of overflowing or backflowing even into the church when you have a generation of people who've been brought up in this self-esteem culture and now can't grapple with the fact that they are insignificant. That the world is not about them. That they're not the center of the universe. They have a hard time grappling and coming to grips with what Paul himself concluded in 2 Corinthians 4 We have this treasure, he says, in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power and glory is from God. And so Paul says we are earthen vessels, we are clay pots, a word that was used for a a, a privy pot by the bed where people would relieve themselves in the middle of the night, some, some potty pot, as he says, that's all we are. Whether with Christ or without Christ, we have no personal significance. But what gives us significance, he says, is the treasure that we can have inside. The treasure of Christ. This magnificent gift that he gives to you. But apart from that, no matter what the world tells you, No matter what they may want you to think, the Bible says, depart from that, you are worthless. In fact, Jesus himself would often say this. He would make this point. He would talk about people coming to the day of judgment and God taking men and women and basically tossing them out like a pile of debris to be burned on a heap, to be thrown, he says at one point, into a pile of manure. That's how worthless people are before God. That's you and your state. That's you and your condition before God. It's you and your ignorance and your blindness. You don't understand the truth. You you seek after all the wrong things. You fill your life with futility. You turn away from God. You're ultimately useless to him. And so Paul ends emphasizing this condition of every single person in their natural state. No one, no one does good, not even one. He doesn't just stop with the evidences of our darkened heart. He goes on in verses 13, 14 to talk about our dishonorable speech. If you want want some explicit evidence, just listen to yourself. And he strings together these paraphrases from Psalm 5 and Psalm 140 and Psalm 10, drawing out the theology that our sinful state is most clearly demonstrated among other places, maybe mostly in this place. It is most clearly demonstrated with our tongue. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 12, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. A few verses or a few chapters later, he says, when uh, what comes out of your mouth proceeds from your heart. In other words, your mouth gives evidence of what is in your heart. It is the evidence of what is down inside. And the evidence is not good. Or the way Paul says it here, your throat 
is an open grave. And the idea is you walk upon a grave that has been opened up and you look down inside of it and what do you see? You see a foul and putrid and decaying corpse. And he's saying, you want to know what is inside of you? Just peer down your throat. Just listen to your words. And your words will give evidence that is what is inside of you is putrid. It is decaying. It is spiritually dead. You open your mouth and it just opens up so that you can smell the putrid nature of your heart with all the spiteful speech or the angry speech or the foul or the lewd speech with the whining and the grumbling and the complaining and the nitpicking with all the envious talk and the jealous talk or with all the boastful speech or the arrogant speech and the list just goes on and on and on. Whatever the manifestation is, is just pouring forth the putrid smell of your, of your heart. They all just sort of open up like a grave to give a glimpse of what's inside, as Jesus says. Paul says this is our nature. We use our tongue. They use their tongues to deceive, to misrepresent, to give mixed signals, to exaggerate, to slander, to make excuses, or just to outright lie. The psalmist says the wicked go astray from the womb speaking lies. In other words, you don't even have to teach people this stuff. It's natural to who we are. I was watching a trailer for a documentary on a a movie. I think it's called Dishonesty. And uh, I was interested in it because I've studied the, the subject for a number of years. So I was watching this thing and the guy was presenting a lot of evidence that I've even... Uh, encounter myself about just how pervasive lying is. I mean, we, we do it without even thinking about it. The little white lies, the little uh, uh, nuances, that we, the spin that we put on things. We live in this world of lies. And I remember the, the, the trailer ends and the final scene is the guy that's doing the, the documentary and he just says this, it's not about being bad, it's just about being human. Well, let me tell you, the Bible says it's about being human and about being bad. It just opens up like a grave to show what's in your heart. The evidence is there. We are, as the scripture says, children of Satan, who's the father of lies. And every time we lie, we join his rebellion against God. Verse 13, Paul says the venom of asps is under their lips. They are biting. These are the biting, the cutting, the sharp words, the ones that you very much intend to hurt, to inflict harm, to make people feel guilty, to make people feel intimidated, to make people feel bad or whatever it is, to shame people. These sharp or even poisonous words where you can 
turn on a dime from being flattering to striking in a moment and biting in a moment. All the evidence is right there. Paul says in verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Eros is the word. Eres, I should say, is the word. It basically means against or, or, or down towards someone. You're, you speak down to people. You speak against people. You tear them down with your words. Or in some cases, you're bitter Against them in, with your words, you're like the person in Hebrews 12 who becomes within the congregation a root of bitterness. And Hebrews 12, 12 says, You've been, you then defile everyone around you. By your bitter speech, you are defiling their consciences. You are soiling their consciences as you soil the conversations with your bitterness. And this is where the truth is. This is where the evidence is. It's just in your speech. Just Listen to yourself. It's in your talk. It's in your daily pursuits. It's in your core beliefs or disbeliefs. And the evidence is overwhelming. You're not among the good people. You're not good. Paul has more to say in verses 15 goes on to talk about destroyed relationships. In verse 18, he talks about defiance against God. In verses 19 and 20, he talks about a day of accountability. All those ways in which our rebellion is evident. And we'll look at them next week. You know, a couple centuries ago, not a couple, really many centuries ago, just a couple centuries after Christ, a man was studying this passage. And he wrote... These words as he read Romans chapter 3. He says, Are we supposed to believe that nobody has ever shown hospitality, fed the hungry, clothed the naked, delivered the innocent from the hands of the powerful, or done anything similar? It doesn't seem possible to me that Paul was attending, intending to assert anything as, as incredible as that. I think that what he meant must be understood as follows. If someone lays the foundation for a house and puts up one or two walls or transports some building material to the site, can he be said to have built the house just because he's set to work on it? The man who will be said to have built the house is the one who has finished off every, each and every part of it. So I think that here the apostle is saying that no one has done good in the sense that no one has brought goodness to perfection and completion. Listen. The Bible declares you unworthy and not good. It's not saying that you are as bad as you possibly could be. It's simply saying you're not as good as you should be. And when you stand before God one day, there will be no exception clauses. There will be no one who in and of themselves are given a pass on their sin, except for those who receive their righteousness from Christ. Those who receive it as a free gift from God. And our challenge to you today is that you wouldn't leave here today walking out thinking that you're fine before God when you're not. The only way you'll ever be fine is if you find yourself in Christ. So would you 
Stand with me and we'll close in a word of prayer. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I want to encourage you as we pray here in a moment. Would you confess your sin to the Lord? Would you tell him that you're unworthy? Would you ask him to cleanse you of your sin and give you righteousness? Father, we're grateful for this time together in the word of God. And we do acknowledge, we do confess and affirm the truthfulness of your word. We are unworthy. We are worthless and no good. We have rebelled against you, against your word, and we stand guilty. But Lord, what a gracious and merciful God you are. That though we deserve all of your wrath and condemnation, you have given us salvation. You've given us grace and you've given us righteousness. Lord, we're grateful this morning for that gift. We're grateful for the Savior, Jesus Christ, who provided it. We're grateful for your plan of salvation. And we pray for those here today, still on a pathway of darkness, still standing in all of their unworthiness. We pray that they would repent, that they would believe, that they would be saved. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.